You are now listening to Macro Hello and welcome to Macrodose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. On today's episode, we'll be taking a look at, first, an update on food inflation as supermarkets report price rises at around 17%. Second, why ChatGPT and artificial intelligence in general are fueling new resource conflicts. And finally, as Chile announces plans to nationalise lithium, what does that mean for the future of climate politics? I'm going to start this week with a quick update on a subject we've covered a couple of times already on the podcast, but one which is worth coming back to because it's going to dominate the economics news over the next year and frankly beyond, and that's food inflation. The most upstate figures from Britain's supermarkets via private research organisation Cantor suggest that a surge in food prices is set to continue. Grocery prices are still up by a whopping 17.3% since April last year. Now that's slightly lower than they were reported for March at 17.5% and lower than the official figures as provided by the Office for National Statistics. But it's fairly obvious to everyone who needs to eat, so that's everyone, that food prices have been skyrocketing for some time. On specific items, it's actually a lot worse than the headline price rises. Figures from Witch magazine show that Asda free-range eggs cost about 18% more than a year ago, whilst Iceland's 15-pack of free-range eggs is up an incredible 85%. Cheese prices are up 25% on the year before. So in general, it's the most basic food items, the things that are usually hardest to avoid buying, that have seen the most rapid price increases. Unbrand products have gone up in price more than branded ones. Tesco value prices have risen 25%, Aldi prices are up 25%, and Lidl prices are up 23%. But branded prices in other supermarkets are up by only a relatively low 14%. You can see what's happening here. The more basic the food item, in other words, the more essential it is, the bigger the price increase. And the cheaper the product, the bigger the price increase as a rule. Overall, It's the lower-budget supermarkets that have seen bigger price increases than the traditionally more expensive ones. So Waitrose prices, for instance, are up only 14% on the year. So it's not just that inflation is high and this squeezes everyone. It's that you're likely to face much higher inflation if you have to shop at cheaper places or buy cheaper products. The implications for inequality here should be fairly obvious. And if you look to the other side of that transaction, it's also obvious where this flow of money is going. Research by Unite the Union has found that for the four largest global agribusinesses, they made $10.4 billion in profit last year, which is up 255%. If you go further down the supply chain, the eight largest UK food manufacturers saw their profits rise 21% since the start of the pandemic. The three giant supermarkets, the ones that dominate UK food sales, so Tesco, Asda and Sainsbury's, have seen their profits double since the start of the pandemic. So what might we do to deal with this? Step one is to start to rinse out those massive profits. You can do this in two ways. First, by making sure everyone gets a pay rise that at least matches inflation. So dropping this idea from the government that if you work in the public sector, at the most you're going to get about 5%. You need something much more like 10% and upwards of that. Second, by imposing government controls on the price of some essentials, like eggs or milk or corn or sunflower oil, for example. We actually do this already for domestic energy prices via the energy price guarantee, albeit not very effectively, as the price at which energy is capped is still actually very high. It's just a bit lower than it might have been without the cap. But there is no reason why you couldn't extend the same principle to food, especially essential items. 
You wouldn't, for instance, suggest a cap on the price of champagne as it's clearly a luxury, something you consume out of choice. But the same wouldn't necessarily apply to sunflower oil or to inputs into essential food production like wheat or corn or various other essential staple products. The aim here would be to dig into those soaring profits and redistribute them, either by putting up wages and salaries in general or by cutting the price of essential consumption and thus taking the immediate pressure off households. But this is only a short-term fix. Over the longer term, we need to change how we produce those essentials. The reasons why this needs addressing were quite starkly laid out earlier this week by none other than the chief executive of Norway's oil fund. Norway's oil fund is the largest single pot of wealth in the world, worth about $1.3 trillion. And the country has built this up over the last three decades or so with revenues from its North Sea oil production. It uses the money essentially as a kind of savings part that helps pay for pensions, amongst other things, in Norway. The head of this huge fund, Nikolai Tangent, said something interesting just earlier in the week, which relates to this problem of long-term food prices. As well as noting the problem of greedflation, with companies whacking up prices to make huge profits over the last 18 months or so, Tangent said, and I quote, inflation is going to be tough to get down. We are seeing a climate impact and pointed to rising prices for olive oil, potatoes and coffee as anecdotal signs that food costs could pump up inflation for years to come. What we're living through now in his eyes and mine and an increasing number of other economists is a cost of living crisis driven by soaring inflation that itself is being caused by a brutal combination of corporate profiteering on one side and ecological crises on the other. This idea is gradually starting to enter the economic mainstream. You will have seen more and more references to greedflation, I expect. And I predict the references to the environmental breakdown as a factor inflation are going to pick up over the next 12 months and beyond. What you'll hear less of is what to do about this. But any programme to manage the crisis has to try and take on both sides of the problem. Squeeze profits to boost most people's real incomes, but also restructure production for the benefit of humanity in general. And I'll just end on this point. There is nothing natural about the consequences of inflation. Whilst climate breakdown is contributing to the shocking rise in food prices, the question of who has to shoulder the burden of those increased costs is a political choice. Remember, a price increase for you means that somebody else is getting that money, and that at the minute means a big profit increase for someone else. While essential goods are going up in price in your supermarkets, food billionaires are reaping the rewards of this. And it doesn't have to be this way. This is a political problem, and it's high time we reframe the conversation around inflation to put pressure on those enabling and facilitating this system in Westminster. On to our second story this week. I wanted to pick up on a short report in the IT specialist publication, The Information. Over the last few weeks in this podcast, we've talked about the real-world consequences of artificial intelligence, cryptocurrencies, and the modern colonial logic of Silicon Valley. But one thing we haven't focused on yet are the growing resource conflicts over semiconductors. Semiconductors are the basic building blocks of the digital technology. It's the tiny bit of silicon, usually, that controls and manages the flows of electronic currents that in turn are the digital information that generate the digital economy that we spend a great deal of our time inhabiting. You'll find semiconductors in your computer, in your phone, in your car, and basically almost any other electronic bit of kit that you might have in your possession or around the house or that you use on a daily basis. These things are absolutely fundamental and will become increasingly fundamental the more we try and turn our economy into electronic and digital forms. 
So the rush to invest in artificial intelligence over the last 12 to 18 months is creating supply shortages and bottlenecks throughout the digital industries as companies try to grab after limited server capacity and semiconductor supplies. The basic problem is that the form of artificial intelligence we use, machine learning, relies on the incredibly intensive use of digital data. The clever way ChatGPT and similar natural language software gives the impression of understanding and conversing with you is through examining immense bodies of text and working out probabilistically what the next word to say to you should be, given the kinds of words that appear in sequence in the text they look at. Image recognition and production depends on a broadly similar process of reading and analysing vast quantities of information. But as we've spoken about before, all of this is incredibly resource intensive, not just energy to power the server farms with data servers now estimated to use about 1% of all electricity that we have globally, but in the huge memory storage and data processing requirements of machine learning in particular. Demand for the graphics processing units, which are the building blocks of the hardware needed for big data processing, despite their name, and which firms like NVIDIA specialize in producing, demand for these has far outstripped supply. It is currently taking months for the semiconductor manufacturers to meet new orders for GPUs. Meanwhile, the servers that house the datasets needed for processing are full to bursting. According to the information, Amazon Web Services, Google, Microsoft and Oracle are amongst the server providers currently trying to ration space to their artificial intelligence customers. The last few years have seen repeated bottlenecks in the supply of semiconductors. The combination of lockdowns and a surge in demand for electronics during COVID helped drive a global shortage over 2020 and into 2021. The surge in demand for machine learning capabilities is now producing a similar impact in a slightly different part of the market. It's for these reasons that major economies like the US, China and the EU are pushing hard to rip up the free market rulebook and steer government spending directly into investment for semiconductors. Ultimately, this can start to look like a bit of a race to the bottom. There's a finite amount of semiconductor manufacturing capacity out there, with new fabrication labs taking years to come on stream, and themselves requiring vast resources, energy, silicon, other critical minerals, and vast quantities of water, the last being a factor that hampered semiconductor production at TSMC, where 90% of the world's most advanced semiconductors come from. Production there hampered back in 2020-2021 when Taiwan was struck by a drought. The same goes for decarbonisation. The move to electrify the world and replace fossil fuels with renewables is in major part a shift from one kind of material use to another. So a movement from oil and from things made out of oil to things made out of other kinds of metals and minerals. Copper for wires, silicon for chips, lithium for batteries, for example. Again, I've said this before on the podcast, but as we enter the end of the era of cheap nature that we discussed on last week's show, we're going to see increasing geopolitical turmoil as nation-states go out to bat for their respective corporations and their own resource imperatives. Under the system of global capitalist competition that we live under, this is not exactly good news. A world in which resources are becoming more scarce and more expensive will generally mean those at the bottom losing out. Whether that's the people of France losing water to the megabassines of large agribusinesses, or the countries of the global south facing the front lines of import price increases. Again, these are political systems and political choices, and if we don't figure out a new approach to mitigating these crises, resource conflicts such as those emerging around semiconductors are going to end up harming those least able to protect themselves from the sharpest edges of global price rises. That leads me neatly onto our third and final story this week. What can we do about resource extraction, price gouging and global competition? Well, one answer potentially can be found over in South America. 
Chile's left-wing president and noted Taylor Swift fan Gabriel Boric last week announced his government would be nationalising the country's lithium resources. In an echo of former president Salvador Allende's nationalisation of that country's copper resources in 1971, Boric has said that a government's stake in the country's lithium production would be, I quote, the best chance we have at transitioning to a sustainable and developed economy. Now, the World Bank estimates lithium demand will explode in the coming decades as decarbonisation accelerates. Their projections suggest that global production of the so-called white gold must increase 450% by 2050 to meet the forecast for increased demand. If you want to build electric vehicles on a massive scale or switch legacy electricity systems over to renewable production, you will need batteries. And batteries, with our current technologies, need lithium. This is, potentially, a bonanza for countries like Chile with deposits of the mineral. And Chile is already the world's second largest producer. 60% of known lithium reserves globally can be found in Chile, Argentina and Bolivia. And investments across these three countries, the so-called lithium triangle, have surged in the last decade. China has been a massive investor in the region, spending $16 billion on new mining and processing facilities there since 2018, and bought almost a quarter of SQM, the Chilean headquartered miner, at the end of 2018. By the end of last year, China was buying two-fifths of Chile's entire lithium export. Chile, on its side, joined China's Belt and Road Initiative, promoting infrastructure investments across the globe in 2018. Now, at present, the majority of Chile's lithium output is controlled by SQM and a US-based mining company, Albemarle. The government's plans aim to shift that, with the Chilean state taking what it describes as a controlling interest in production. The plan on paper isn't for full nationalisation, in the sense that the government will take 100% ownership of all lithium mining and refining in the country. Instead, the government is proposing to renegotiate existing mining contracts and to make sure it has a controlling stake in all future mining concessions. Codelco, the state-owned copper mining company, and itself the world's largest producer of copper, will be tasked with setting up a new state-owned lithium mining company. The model is broadly a sensible one, not necessarily especially radical. These joint public-private partnerships, with an often foreign company working on a joint enterprise with a government-owned producer, are common across the world. The advantage for the local government is that alongside revenues from the mining itself, they potentially get access to the technology and skills otherwise locked up inside the multinational corporations. The advantage for the corporations is that they get access to increasingly valuable raw materials. There has to be also, lurking behind this, a political concern. When Allende nationalised Chile's copper mines, he did so without renegotiating with their owners and paying a minimal compensation, nothing at all in a few cases. Now, there's a sound social justice logic to doing this. That mine owners have profited enormously over decades from resources that belong to the Chilean people. So the nationalisation was seen as correcting that balance. The problem was the immediate reaction of the mining companies and then beyond them. Foreign engineers were pulled out of the country and the new, nationalised producer, Codelco, had trouble buying equipment. Credit and financing to Chile from the rest of the world, led by US banks, was steadily reduced, if never quite cut off, which in turn made the financing of imports difficult. More seriously, really far more seriously, initial concerns and early moves to unseat Allende in Washington hardened into outright support for the September 1973 coup that toppled his regime and installed the dictatorship of General Augusto Pinochet, who, ironically really, never actually privatised nationalised copper mines, which remain in government hands. That history is unavoidable in South America. It's not the only reason that recent left-leaning governments there have been more inclined to push for a partnership or other partial nationalisation models, but it's there lurking. 
And even with the more gentle plans of the Boric government, the industry has been complaining, threatening to restrict investment, and with share prices in SQM and Albemarle taking a sharp drop over the last week. But at least in theory, the part nationalisation could be a kind of win-win. In theory. As resource economics expert Theo Riafrancos has said, the evidence from the last decade in Latin America is that whilst governments can typically share in some of the revenues from mining, the broader benefits of developing skills and tech transfers locally can be harder to find. Boric, in addition, recognising the immensely destructive local environmental and human impacts of mining, has said that the public producer will seek to put the environment and indigenous communities first in developing plans. It's public ownership that allows this to happen, but since the private producer involved in the partnership will see this as creating more costs for itself, chewing into its own profits, it remains to be seen how far the laudable ambition can actually be met in reality. Still, there are grounds for optimism. The world today isn't the 1970s. South America, as Brazilian President Lula's visit to Beijing last week showed, is no longer quite the US's backyard nor is it the post-Cold War period of the 1990s and 2000s, with the US clearly a dominant power. The world is emerging into a version of multipolarity, with China first amongst the new great powers. That creates opportunities. The mere fact of competition amongst the great powers for raw resources, in circumstances where, unlike earlier colonial times, countries have won a degree of independence, creates the opportunity for bargaining, of playing off different powers and winning some advantages. It's deeply imperfect, but as Axios's Jael Holtzman says, Chile's move demonstrates how the energy transition could invert colonialist resource market power dynamics as the demand for minerals like lithium empowers nations in the global south. And before we go this week, a quick plug for Norwich Transform, taking place this weekend, Saturday the 29th of April. Following the path blazed by the world transformed over the last half a decade and bringing together those involved in action across Norwich, from tenants' unions to teachers on strike, alongside activists from across the country, Norwich Transformed is an opportunity to debate, discuss and workshop the fight for Norwich and the world transformed. Speakers include Keir Milburn on Generation Left and Clive Lewis of Being the MP for Norwich and discussion on how to organise against your landlord and reports back from the strikes currently taking place across the country from some of the workers involved. I'll be hosting the first Macrodose Live in the morning with three other economists, Antonia Jennings, Ben Tippett and Beth Stratford, on hand to give some answers to your economics-based questions. Defying the cost of living crisis, tickets are just £5 wage and £3 unwage, but I'm reliably told they're selling out fast. Get yours when you search for Norwich Transform 2023, and maybe I'll see a few of you there. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.